Welcome to the... <laughs> no, 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 I can't do that. Let's try another one. Uh, how about this? <laughs> no, no, that won't work either. Let's try this. get on board with that. Let's roll with it. Welcome to the Begin the Begin podcast. My name is Jeff Hillemeyer, and I'm on a mission to find out what makes people tick. Not just anyone, people who are making a profound impact on the world. I want to dig into their origin story and get to the root of why and how they do what they do. I hope you are as inspired coming out of these conversations as I am. Let's get into it. Some people you meet, and it's like that scene in Step Brothers where it takes you a little while and then you realize, did we just become best friends? And then there are some people that you meet, within a few minutes you know you were meant to be good friends with this person. My guest today is one of those people that as soon as we met, I knew we would be friends for life. And I know you'll be as inspired by Matali as I am after listening to this episode. And hey, while I've got you, definitely consider subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. I have a lot of great guests lined up that, trust me, you won't want to miss. Okay, let's get into it. This is such an exciting thing for me because um, I was thinking about my guest today. And you know how there's sometimes you meet somebody and it takes time to sort of build rapport or, or realize you should be friends. Like I think of this, the stepbrothers scene where they hate each other or, or whatever. And then suddenly they're like, do we just become best friends? And then there's some people you meet where it's like almost in, instantaneous that you're like, we were meant to meet and become friends. Like it was, I remember when we met, we'll get to that. But uh, Matali, could you say who you are and what you do so we can get into this? Yes. Hello, Jeff. Hello, friends. Uh, my name is Matali Chakraborty. I am currently the CEO and founder of a new organization called Youth Jobs Connect. Awesome. And we will jump into that, but we've got lots to, lots to cover because uh, we haven't talked in a while. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get into it. So who, I think I remember, but who introduced us back in the day? I want to say, of course, it was Doug Shipman. Was it? Well, it might have been. Was it did, Doug? I thought it might be Kate, or did you introduce me to Kate Atwood? I feel as though maybe I introduced you to Kate. It's like maybe. you guys are like the, I mean, I'm previous, like ATL, posse, everybody knows, but like mine goes back years ago. Mm. But like you all are like rooted, foundational. It's like Doug Shipman, Kate Atwood, Jeff Hillemeyer. John Lewis, like that's Bernice King. Like that's like the, I wore my good trouble sweatshirt. Nobody can see it, but like, that's how I think of, uh, of of you. Um, so my goodness, we should stop now because I'll just use that soundbite forever. (laughs) You could, you put me in company that I definitely don't belong in, but I remember we met at my office, right. And I maybe probably sat on the deck and it was like, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was just me, but I felt like, wow, I, I can't believe it took us this long to meet. And we're just like flowing. Um, I think oftentimes it's like when I meet somebody that I have, I don't know if, if, if you have this, but it's like when you have like 92 connections, like if you go mm. through like LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, whatever it is, one, I think you easily just like, you're like, well, I mean, we've probably been in many rooms together, 
we just were probably talking too much to other people and we never found each other. And at first it used to weird me out, but now I think about it in a way of like the time we met was the perfect time to meet. And maybe when we met back then, we wouldn't have had that proper connection and it wasn't the right time for us to meet, regardless of the fact that we were circling each other's orbit. Um, so yeah, it was, I remember, I remember that afternoon, it was sitting on the deck at your guys' old office. It was like uh-huh. a beautiful day. And I was like, what is this life? How do you have this beautiful deck? And you guys had like great coffee and um, everybody in your office was smiling. And I was like, I just want to work here. Like, and I think I even said it when I was leaving and you said, come on by anytime and feel free to come work out of this office. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was a pretty special place to work for sure. Now, I, I, this was funny. As I was uh, uh, sending the invite for this podcast after we agreed uh, to do it, um, and I typed in your name, Apple autocorrected to iTalk. Have you ever had that? <laughs> no. I, I mean, the number. somebody had posted on Twitter the other day, it was like, what is the most common misspelling of your name? And mm. the com- most common misspelling of my name is just Natalie, like an entirely different name. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Th- I bet that's an autocorrect. Yeah. Situation. It's either Natalie or metal. Like, mm. and which, as you can imagine, I mean, names, I, now I'm more comfortable in my own name, but growing up because everybody utilized it as a way to give me a nickname and most like more likely make fun of my name. Metal Metallica was like a big thing. So gotcha. I'm over it. Metal metal's pretty cool though. Metal. Yeah. Well, now it's just, it's a great way to intro myself too. like, I've, I've utilized the, Mm. the fact that my name is a bit different as a fun way to introduce myself. My, my favorite one, and I I realize this is audio and nobody can see me, but the opposite of Mashorty is Matali. And the joke Mm. is I'm five, four, I'm a shorty. So (laughs) you want to know something funny? I've never thought of you as short, shortish. I've literally never thought of you. Just you've got such a big personality. I've never even as a Indian American, Bengali American. Um, I, I'm actually a giant, like as a five four person. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but my I have family that's much taller than me, and they're like, "What's wrong with you? Are you shrinking?" So, so you're the tall. Yeah. You're, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Okay. So, um, but I thought I talk was appropriate because I, I feel like um, you're you're share a lot. You've got great. Sto- you always have great stories. Um, and you know love to talk to you. So let's do this. Well, I will say this about talking. Fun fact about me. I'm currently, I've been pandemicking and sheltering with my new nephew, nephew, um, who is quite the talker. And the funny thing is, is my dad used to remind me and my mom reminds me is the first two years of my life, I guess, like I didn't make a sound. And then my dad said, I started talking and I never stopped. (laughs) So so for a while they, they had actually asked the doctors, they're like, developmentally, is there something wrong? Can she not talk? Which is very ironic because how much I do talk now. <laughs> That's so interesting because I have a really good friend who's Indian American um, and he had the exact same thing. Oh, really? I mean, he didn't talk for years. And then once he started, he's never stopped. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, good. Well, um, t- t- remind me, did you grow up here? No, I, um, I was actually like the typical Indian American story. I was actually born in New Jersey. Um, but then we moved to Indiana when I was about three. So I really claim Indiana's because it's where I grew up. So I'm and once again, another moniker, I'm the Indian from Indiana. And people often say, it's like, how did you guys land there? And I was like, the boat got lost. And they go, what? And I'm like, you really need to check your geography because there's no like water room yeah. getting to Tarot, Indiana. But no, I grew up in Indiana. Um, 
was definitely a minority um, in the community. My dad was an engineer. Work took him there. Um, and yeah, so there was a small Indian American population in Tarot, Indiana. I'm very proud of my Midwestern roots. I came to Atlanta to go to Emory University. So that's what originally had brought me to Atlanta. And a lot of that, uh, my decision-making to go to Emory was I wanted to go to a good school in a big city um, because I wanted to not be the brown girl in the room always. I wanted to have more of a diverse population. I wanted to kind of blend in a bit more. And I didn't realize how much of the decision-making um, I was you know, doing and trying to set up for my life at that time at like 17 years old. Um, yeah. But it was important to me. And then I got to Emory and I was kind of weirded out by all the Asian Americans. I'm like, where did you all come from? Um, yeah, it was a little strange for me. But yeah, I, I'm a native Midwesterner um, and have since... And, and still claim Midwestern roots because uh, that's where I was. That's where I was raised. So um, yeah. I say I say things like "you guys." Um, uh, and I, you don't say "pop." Do I you? do say "pop." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <probably>. <laughs> um, I, I, okay, so that's interesting to me about Emory because I was I was going to say uh, I'm not sure you would have found that kind of diversity at, at Emory, uh, but you did. I did. I mean, and, and since Emory is diversity population, like both international students and just um, students from minority populations has increased over the years. I think at first, the one of the big things that I really wanted to was to have like a population of students from all over the country also, not like, not just by race, but also like geographic diversity. And I think, I think the differences between me and all of the people that came from the Northeast was almost greater than the fact that I was a brown woman versus like, you know, the, the white students, which were in the masses, it was the differences that I found were more of the fact that there was a small Midwestern population um, at Emory compared to the Northeast, the West Coast and the South. Um, and so like that to me was the bigger difference because I thought like the Olive Garden and Red Lobster were like really nice restaurants. Like, I mean, <laughs> I'm not, and I think they're fine to those that think those are nice restaurants. Great. But I didn't, I thought Prada was the name of a student. I didn't know that that was like some fancy brand. Like, I, I just, mm -hmm. that was just not something in my purview, nor was it something that like really mattered to me. So um, it was just not the way that I was raised. Um, so yeah, Emory offered, I think, more diversity um, than I had anticipated. And it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because um, it opened my eyes to so much more of those differences between all of us than I probably would have gotten if I went to, you know, a school that was either Indiana based or, you know, people that look just like me or something along those lines or just from the same region. Well, I know a lot of your background um, and I'm, I, I'm really curious what you majored in. So I went to Emory like all a good Indian daughter should to become a doctor. Um, uh -huh. And I was good at science. I was pre-med and I got to Emory and I was definitely weeded out. Like it's known as a, as a pre-med kind of weeding out institution, like a lot of ambition. And then um, like I was good at science, but I wasn't near the level of some of the students that were there. And I had a huge interest in politics um, growing up. It's kind of ingrained in me. My dad, like my dad would always joke that like he didn't take a break from the news. The news took a break from him by going to a commercial. Um, so I ended up majoring in economics and political science. Um, which in the end, I did nothing. I technically didn't go into after I graduated. So that's kind of a theme in most of the story of me about me, which, which you know a lot about. So, yeah, well, I, although I, because I know your passions and so forth, so I, I'm not surprised. Um, but looking at the things you've done, and I want to talk about some of those things in, um, 
it makes sense that you have ha- that you had a a degree that doesn't match up. Most of the entrepreneurial people that I know have some sort of odd degree that doesn't match. It just seems to be the case. Yeah, I think I think the biggest benefit was getting to go to an amazing university. Like, uh, you know, t- getting into if you fast forward to why I am where I am now, so much of it is I kind of recognize that so many of my guardrails and my bumpers and my safety net was established from the day that I was born because the pathway to education was the only pathway um, that I knew and that I knew I was going to achieve. There was never a moment or a doubt um, that my parents didn't believe it and that I didn't believe it. And when you believe something and you have that like will to do something and you have the support, it's a lot easier to achieve. And I didn't know any other way other than you're going to get to go to college Um, And then the idea of getting to go to college and then explore, like that blew my mind too. I mean, it took a while to convince my parents to let me stay when I decided not to do pre-med. Like there was major negotiations going into sophomore year about me um, not pursuing uh, medicine, but uh, finally got them to come around. Um, But yeah, I I have been bad. I've been a bad kind of immigrant's child when it comes to like taking the traditional path. Like I just forgot to do that. <laughs> oh yeah, you know your path is very non-traditional. Um, let, let's get into some of that past. Um, I remember. D- did you help start Music Midtown? I know you definitely helped grow it and build it, but like, and and maybe some of our listeners are not old enough to really remember the roots of Music Midtown. But like, did you? Were you part of? Starting no, it? not starting it. Starting it was um, what was the first year? Ninety four. So I was there for the 10th oh, yeah. anniversary, the 11th and the 12th. So my senior year of college, I actually, once again, uh, going to an amazing university like Emory afforded me some opportunities that I didn't even know um, existed by exploring kind of through extracurricular activities. And my first kind of love at Emory was being a part of the student programming council, which put on all the concerts, the big events, and going to a private institution like Emory, like we had a huge budget um, so like one of the first contra- the concerts I produced was like Outcast. Um, the first concert that I saw wow. on campus was Busta Rhymes. Then we brought like the Goo Goo Dolls and through these huge events brought speakers like Ralph Nader and Cornell West and uh, Lewis Black comedians like, and we were doing that as students. And it was just my like great love on campus. Like so many students actually thought like I worked for the university because I was just constantly putting on these events. Um, but to me, it's like the stressors of a, of a great institution like Emory is like everyone was studying all the time. And these events was an opportunity to like bring people together and also bring people from the different um, dorms together, both undergraduate and graduate. And I called it like this sea of smiles. Or when I ended up going into the entertainment industry, I called it the business of smiles. It was like my job to take that stressed out college student as a college student to like convert the crazy um, into this like good time. And so my senior year, I, the, I remember was somebody in the student activities, I was like, have you thought about interning with like a concert promoter? And I go, what's, I didn't even know what that was. Um, and I, I, I believe it was from like monster.com. It didn't even list the company. And I like saw it was like work within concerts or something and help with like sponsorship. I didn't even know what it was. And I picked up the phone and I just called. And back in the day when you called people and you didn't Mm -hmm. just like, you know, you didn't have access to everybody via LinkedIn and Twitter and so on. And I called the office and I said, I saw this posting for this internship opportunity. I've been doing these things on campus. Um, And it was Concert Southern Promotions, which 
in Atlanta turned into Clear Channel Entertainment, which is now the Live Nation Atlanta office. Um, and I, my senior year, I interned for the Music Midtown Festival. And I was one of five interns. And I quickly, in, in the kind of the way that I always am, I kind of forged my way into like, what else can I do? What else can I do? What else can I do? Yeah. Before you know it, back then, they had like a whole kids area, um, built a new partnership with like NPR and like, um, I mean, the magnitude of that event. I mean, those that don't know the history of Music Midtown, it was one of the OGs of three-day music festivals in the country. There was only a handful of them. Now there's like five every weekend, pre-pandemic times. Um, and I got to work with the great late Alex Cooley, who is um, basically the reason that Atlanta and music is where it is and how it is, is because of Alex Cooley bringing music to the Southeast. Um, and he was just that first boss and mentor for me that kind of taught me some of my like foundational business skills of like, you always call everybody back. It doesn't matter if it's uh, Bruce Springsteen's agent or if it's the janitor, you treat everybody with the same respect. If somebody takes the time to reach out to you, you take the time to call them back. Um, remember what you're doing it for. It's for the fans. It's for the audience. It's for the community. It's for economic development within the city. It's trying to... And like all of that versus, I mean, I was a young college student. I thought I was like, oh, maybe I'll hang out with some musicians or something. But that's not why I did it on campus. So it wasn't why I did it professionally. And then I was offered a job when I was graduating. And I convinced my parents that I was going to take a year to make money before I went to law school. Um, <laughs> then, I for then I forgot to go to law school. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I, and once again, this it, it stems from just like somebody taking a chance on me and open, giving me an opportunity to be me. And I didn't even know what being me was. Um, but when the environment just allows you to be that person, you don't know any different. And I think that's been fundamental as I've worked either corporate or nonprofit within institutions or developing my own of the idea of really getting to be yourself. I think oftentimes, like, I don't know, necessarily know if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm just being me. Um, yeah. And what a great way to be. Like, what a privilege, what an honor that supposedly being me is valued. Um, and I often think about how so many young people and so many people go through life and they never feel valued. They never feel like they matter. They never had anybody believe in them and their ideas, their dreams and hopes. And at a very young age, I was told to speak up, share my, share my ideas, validate my ideas, try to figure out how to do my ideas. And if they fail, it's going to be okay. Like I had these, once again, these guardrails, these bumpers, but um, once, and it was, once again, it was from Emory to that first opportunity and how important that first opportunity is to set the trajectory for the rest of my professional life so far. You know, when I, it's interesting, I, when I talk to young people, um, I think I'm saying something similar to what you just said, except I take a little bit of a different route. I talk more about personal purpose, figuring out what is special about you, what change do you want to see in the world? And if, if you can find that out, it took me until I was 35 or so to figure out what that was. And ever since then, life has been better and I've been more successful because I define success differently. Right. But it took me a long time to get there. And, and I think to your point, most people don't get there or lots of people don't. Um, when you talk to her, if you were to give advice to the 22 year old who's thinking about their career and so forth, how would you tell them to start that process of, of, you know, finding what they're great at or being appreciated for that or taking the risks with the guardrails? Like, I think the biggest thing is, is knowing that you might not have the answer and, and being okay with that and getting comfortable with that. Now, not everybody has that luxury because so often some young people, 
you know, can't take the risk, like whatever type of job they've got to do or what responsibilities they have. But if you do, um, or if you don't, is find somebody that's willing to help guide you. But also I, that whole, I, I forgot who says is like, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I mean, it might've been another John Lewis one. Um, I can't remember, but I, I don't necessarily know I knew that, but I was allowed that. And I, I can look back now and, and see it and recognize that. And sometimes the thing that I could honestly say now is like, I'm so grateful that I took that risk and I was willing to be uncomfortable then. Because now when I do that, it's just kind of like a way of life. It's who I am. Um, but if I hadn't done it back then, I don't necessarily know I would be comfortable doing it now. And that whole like, you know, they say, it was like, what do you want to be when you grow up starting at like the age of three, the age of 10? Like, I'm still waiting for somebody to like, be like, are you, am I there yet? I don't know. Like, is this the grown up part of me? <laughs> like, I'm not quite sure. But especially now with like younger populations and the idea to explore and kind of pivot and the beauty of America, if you are, if, if society was just, is that everybody should have equal opportunity um, because everybody is capable, but that's not, that's not true, right? Like opportunity is not democratized. It's not available for everybody. So if you can be uncomfortable and willing to take the risk, know that you might not have all the answers. And I think there's this pressure, right? Of like that 18 to 22, you've got to figure it all out be okay with talking to people and trying to understand where you are and who you are then and, and be okay with that next. I, I always say it's not what, what do you want to be when you, when you grow up? It's like, what do you want to do next? Um, because, you know, our parents' generation may, might have stayed in the same field for their entire career, but that's just not reality anymore. First of all, industry is changing like daily, right? We're in a pandemic where certain jobs are just going to go away forever. Um, mm -hmm. So you've, you've got to be able to pivot. And I'm, I'm grateful that at a young age, I understood, I, di I didn't know those words, but <laughs> that's what I was doing. I was constantly kind of pivoting um, yeah. and taking my skill set and package and somehow being able to then fit it into the next thing. I love that. You hit on several things I want to follow up on. I, I love the idea of not what do you want to be when you grow up, but what do you want to be next? Um, I think that's a great it's a great sort of life philosophy. I also think you talked about a just society. My favorite definition of a just society is one that you would design if you did not know how you would enter into mm. it. And I think that's the thing that, you know, look, if you're not like me, if you're not a white male, straight Christian, you know, no disabilities, you have, you have to <laughs> hear that question and go, yeah, you're right. I would design it differently if I wasn't privileged as a person can be. And so, um, I did want to talk about that for a moment. Like, You've worn different hats. You've moved into different industries. You've, I mean, you, you've apparently had a title at one point, Chief of Good Times. Is that correct? That's correct. <laughs> um, yeah, that was an entrepreneurial venture. Um, uh, myself and my business partner, Dan Leck, who I met in Atlanta, who, fun story, was my intern, was the office intern, not just mine, when I was at what is now Live Nation at Concert Southern. Um, he had this idea of bringing together amazing entrepreneurs from different sectors and bringing them to this family ranch in Texas. And he invited me and I was a bit skeptical. And I was like, what, why do I need to go to a ranch in Texas for four days? Like, what is this concept? Um, and then I went, I was one of the first groups that he brought out and I was just, I fell in love with it. And then the idea was, he's like, let's do this together. Um, and at the time it was just like a side project hustle um, and once like, one another thread that I've, I've recognized recently is like, not that I'm claiming to be some sort of visionary, but oftentimes I did, the ideas that we had were too early, like the market wasn't actually quite ready for it. 
And so meeting of the big minds, which was this four day off the grid kind of entrepreneurial retreat, bringing people from for profit, nonprofit, Hollywood, and so on. The idea that like entrepreneurship can be very lonely, like you're hustling, you're working, you're meeting people constantly, but who are you actually connecting to? Who is your community? Who are your people? Um, And the idea that we can kind of accelerate those connections and friendships by a shared experience. And so we would take people to a ranch in Texas. We did this beautiful house in the North Georgia mountains. We did the Napa area, small groups, anywhere between 10 to 15, that kind of very civic dinners, Jeffersonian style esque of like, there's a tipping point of like the max number of people you can kind of have um, in a gathering where everybody feels comfortable. Um, And the idea that diversity breeds innovation. And so we would, with oftentimes one of the biggest things that we had, um, a lot of people would kind of push back against is that we made everybody spend one-on-one time with each other. And that could be go for a walk, make a cocktail together, sit on the deck or porch. We'd have shared meals and shared experiences depending on our locale, but one-on-one. And every time people be like, I don't think I'm going to be able to get to this person, this person, this person. I, what do I have in common with her? She's like a social media influencer and I'm a FBI hostage negotiator. And I'm like, and guaranteed every single time the person that they were like, I'm not going to make time for is the person that they connected with the most. And it's just, and to me, the beauty of that, it's like, you never know how your differences will create more of a connection than those that are like, like-minded. Um, but basically that title was made up because we ran the company. So <laughs> I, call, <laughs> okay. I call myself the chief of good times, um, it was, well. uh, which I often think sometimes is like, once you get in an entrepreneurial world is like, what are titles, right? Because you're wearing so many hats. So at that point, just make it something that has a great story. <laughs> so that's it's probably the best title I've ever heard. So it worked. It, it jumped off of the page when I saw that. <laughs> um, so I, I am curious because you're, you're, you're not timid. Um, I imagine there may be moments in your life where you were uh, you lacked confidence, but I've never seen it. Um, and, and not from an ego perspective, just from you, you, since I've known you, you know who you are, it seems, um, you, you've done what you've done and, and you're not, you know, you're not shy about it. Um, I'm, I am curious in all these different roles and businesses and partnerships, um, are things the same, um, in terms of, you know, being a Brown female, leading, um, partnering, uh, starting, are things better today or are they worse than they were 10 years? Like, how how do you, how do you think about that? I, I think 10 years ago, I definitely wasn't as confident or comfortable with who I am, um, and how I show up in the world and how I physically look in the world. Um, I can want, even though that was just 10 years ago, I, I, I was living in DC at the time. I was working in a nonprofit and it was a place that you'd think you would feel comfortable as somebody in a nonprofit space, minority, female. Um, I would say that I think certain movements the past few years have shown the importance of the female voice, the, the minority voice, the first generation voice. I mean, I think those that are politically conscious and active, I personally, you know, I lean left. I'm, you know, seeing Kamala Harris as a black and Indian American, you know, woman, I mean, provided some validation just of my entire existence of the fact that, you know, supposedly somebody with a, a similar background has the ability to kind of move up the rungs, whatever they are. I often think that maybe why I've carved out so many of my own roles more as this, what I call entrepreneur versus entrepreneur for many years is because I, I 
probably was doing that because I didn't think I was qualified or I wouldn't have been hired because of who I am. So instead, I just kind of pitched myself as something different. And usually it was within an organization that was looking for that different versus molding into what they thought they needed. Um, Mm. But I don't necessarily know I was comfortable in that years ago. And maybe I'm more comfortable in now. And maybe that's why I'm running an organization now is like, I'm tired of even trying to pitch myself in that way. Maybe I just need to be me and see if the world will accept it. Um, And and that's probably just out of growth of like accepting myself. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But the whole idea, I think accepting myself comes from representation, right. Of seeing myself out there more, whether it's on TV um, or in movies or in commercials or other business leaders, like that matters so much, you know, because most of my life growing up, you know, all I wanted to be was not myself. I mean, to be very frank, on my eighth birthday cake, I wished to become a white girl. Hmm. And I woke up the next morning and I wasn't one and I cried. Hmm. And I tell that story, it came out recently and it must've been something I suppressed because I don't remember it. And like all of a sudden I share that story and I'm like, where did that come from? It was like deep in some sort of memory bank. Um, and I shared it and I, I kind of giggled as I was sharing it cause it seemed so silly, but there was so much truth to what, you know, I probably was feeling as a kid at that time. And like, and also the past few years has, has brought up a lot of that trauma that I suppress. I loved where I grew up, but that didn't come from some, you know, bad things happening to me and my family that we wouldn't even speak of because if we shared those stories, it meant we were different and all we wanted to do was belong. Um, there was enough of people pointing and calling us different that I didn't need to bring up more fodder. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I think it's better, but it's been hard. Um, and I don't know, I hope we're getting to a place where it's not about being different. It's just the norm that this is what society looks like. Right. Um, that I, I don't jokingly call myself the Indian from Indiana, um, I don't make a joke that I'm, you know, dot, not feather. Like that is, those are microaggressions that people used to come. I didn't even know that was a word. I didn't know that that's what people were doing to me. When you think back and thank you for sharing that. When you think back to your eight-year-old self, how much of that do you think was like the media? Like, like everything you're seeing, you know, it's female superheroes or what, you know, like Barbies, like all that stuff. Is that, do you think that? 100%. I mean, I didn't know what I saw mostly around me was white America. It was definitely on TV. I mean, it's hard to sh- talk about the Cosby show now because of what happened, but that was like the closest thing to seeing, you know, somebody close to that look like us, um, you know, uh, but yeah, I, it was definitely, it's like you are the product of like, you know, the place in the environment that, you know, you are nurtured and you grew up in a way. And I am so prideful of being Midwestern and from Indiana, but, Gosh knows, I think so much of my pride comes from, you know, being able to call myself the Indian from Indiana and almost surviving where I grew up, you know. Um, I didn't know how different that was until I connected with Asian Americans at Emory who grew up in big cities and couldn't believe the things that I was telling them that happened that I had never shared with anybody because I never shared it with my white friends that I grew up with. Some of that stuff even came out post-2016 election, the night of that the the election in 2016, I was actually with a childhood friend that we reconnected in San Francisco. 
And when the, you know, the, they announced 45 as the winner, I broke into tears and I was crying and I just started sharing all these stories. I mean, I kind of don't, I don't remember, even remember um, all the things I shared with my friend, but the next day she, she was just like, are you okay? She's like, how did I never know that stuff happened to you? We grew up together. And I was like, I never wanted to share. I was like, all I did was just, I, if I shared it, it meant that it was happening to me and it was true. And that I, I somehow didn't belong. And I was told to go back to where I came from. And I didn't know where I came from. I thought it was from Tara Indiana. Like, where am I supposed to go? Like my family village in India, which I'm very proud of. But like, so I, I think that's how so much of the, of what's happened over the past few years is, you know, it's emboldened, it's given permission for those folks to exist. And so maybe it, it's actually felt a bit harder recently, right? As, um, as a brown woman of like, it, sometimes I am conscious of stepping out on the street, right? Of, of who is going to look at me funny. It's the way that I grew up of like in being in any small town. And a few years ago, when I was running the, the jobs tour. I was conscious of when I was in small town, West Virginia, because I, I knew where I grew up. There are certain folks that looked at me in a way that created a lot of fear. And there's a reason, but then I also knew to like stand tall and proud and remind them that I am just as American as they are. I'm here to help your community. I'm not here, you know, to spotlight or make anybody feel bad. I, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're blue or red, I'm here to talk about jobs and opportunities. So. It's a long-winded story of my eighth no, birthday. No, I mean, again, I, I appreciate you sharing. I, I would love some advice then because I, as you know, I, I have an eight-year-old Asian-American in my house and a 10-year-old. We adopted two children from China and um, something that um, something that uh, happened to us when COVID hit was that, um, you know, we didn't know because they were still in school when it was first starting and, you know, this virus mm-hmm. came from China, right? And you know, we had heard some things that had happened at schools, but we hadn't heard from them and we tried and, and, and they didn't seem to have um, had anything happen to them. But um, after, you know, maybe a month into quarantine, um, my year old boy, my, my wife overheard him playing and he was playing with two dolls and, and, and one of them was China and one of them was the, the United States. And he was having China apologize, the China doll apologize to the American doll for, for doing this. And will you forgive me? And, you know, so, so there's stuff going on, um, obviously in his head. Um, do you have any advice for me, um, raising a, a child like that? I think one of the things that I'm conscious of, and I think about this is so much of, you know, the work that I'm doing now centers around watching young people in the streets and the protests and the, and fighting for justice. Um, and, and, you know, being very specific to black America. Right. And the idea of, of, caregivers of any kind, parents, grandparents, whoever it is of taking care of black girls and boys of having to have those conversations of being conscious of driving or walking down the street or so on. And that breaks my heart. Right. And I, I can look back and I wonder, would it have been helpful if instead of my parents kind of sharing, like, you need to work hard, you need, you're a woman, you're Indian, you've got to work five times harder than everybody of just understanding a little bit more of kind of like how our differences are beautiful and how this country is made up of people from all over and that I am just as American as someone else. But I mean, some, some of the things they told me growing up actually proved true that like, no matter how hard I try, the fact that I was born in America, like some people don't think I'm American, that that's just, that's a hard thing. And I, 
And I wonder if maybe those harder conversations that maybe they thought like a young person wouldn't understand would have been better to just share and kind of talk about that, like, you know, because I, I grew up and learned it doesn't matter if it was that I was a woman or a brown person. Some people just don't like each other. Like that's just a reality. That was hard for me to take because I like to like everybody and it took me a long time to understand that some people just don't like you and you didn't do anything wrong to them. And that actually had nothing to do with like my demographic breakdown. Um, so yeah, I think maybe some of it is the, the hard, I don't, I don't know necessarily the hard conversation, like the real conversations, um, a friend of mine, I'll plug her. Um, she's, uh, running a company called Explanation Kids. I think I was sharing her story with yes, you a little I bit. Love what they're doing. Um, yeah. To tell a little bit about Explanation, Explanation Kids. Kids, you know, came from, um, you know, what happened in Charlottesville and it's like, how do you explain, you know, the, the riots in the streets and somebody running somebody over and, you know, this racial reckoning that happened in this part of the country. And it's like, how do you then take that news and then talk to kids about it? Anything that's happening. How do you talk about the pandemic? How do you talk about, you know, what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the protests? And how do you explain that to young people? Um, You know, teachers are doing the best that they can. Gosh knows all teachers are trying to do the best they can in this pandemic, but even pre-pandemic, it is not their responsibility to teach all day long and be the prime, be the only educator in a child's life and explanation kids works with schools but they're also like creating content via video and so on to have these hard conversations in a way that is um, understandable um, for young people so you know I I wonder if like having something like explanation kids when I was younger to like see animated figures that look different and come from different backgrounds and so on would have been helpful yeah that's great. That's great advice. Um, I appreciate that. And I, and that reminds me to go back to that platform and bring it, bring it into the household. Um, I have two more things I, I want to talk about. You have one of my favorite, I don't know, I'd call it life philosophies and it's go left. Yeah. We t- please talk about go left. So crazily back. Um, so the, the whole, mo- the, the tagline for myself, the mantra is go left feels right to do the unknown. Um, oftentimes when people see when nothing goes right, go left, they always send it to me. I've had people literally send me like big placards and and posters and so on. But mine is go left feels right to do the unknown. And it, it all came from the first time I bought a one way ticket out of the country. So in 2005, um, was the last year that I knew that music midtown was going to be in the form that it was music midtown live nation was coming in. It was going to, I think it was still clear channel at the time was going to be changing it. Um, I kind of knew that I was ready to move on, but I did, I, once again, I didn't know what came next. And I had this idea of traveling and I've been lucky that I was born with like an American passport. I can kind of go anywhere, but the only place I'd been at a country at that point in time was to India and we would stop over in places in Europe and so on, but I actually hadn't stepped foot in any of these countries. And my lease was coming to an end and I decided to put all my stuff into storage and I bought a one-way ticket out of the country And because I am the type of person that I am, mind you, I was in event production. I'm very type A. I'm very scheduled, everything to like the minute. And I told people I was going to travel. And they're like, but where? I was like, well, I'm starting in Greece. And then I'm going to travel. They're like, no, but where are you staying? Where are you going? I was like, I don't know. Pre-smartphones, friends, those that are listening. This is crazy, Vitaly. And and then when people are like, no, Vitaly, you have to have an itinerary. And I was just like, you know, I'll come to a fork in the road. I'll maybe hang a left. I'll go left. And actually, then I like kind of, I Googled it, I remember. And there was something about like, when people are actually given a choice, like, and like, if you're ever at a stadium, and actually, this proved true, because when I came back from this adventure, I ended up, that's when I worked for the Braves is like, if you're going down a stairwell, and it's like really crowded, go left down the stairwell versus right. And it's like, 
is always like 80% less crowded. And so it was always like the, the opposite way of like what was the norm. Um, and that's where it all started. And it, originally it was this idea of kind of like just going off and traveling and like really falling into the unknown. Um, it was actually pre Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gil- Gilbert. Mm-hmm. Um, so not that I'm saying I'm some sort of Elizabeth Gilbert, but this idea of just putting myself in an unknown situation and seeing how I would fare. Um, and travel just became a big part of kind of like my story and my adventure of just being in these unknown parts. But it, it was never about pictures. It was never about like monuments. It was this idea of I wanted to like meet more people from different countries as somebody who, you know, lives this kind of like dual life as an Indian American and, you know, as an immigrant's child of like, do I belong in India? Do I belong in America? I just wanted to like understand more cultures. And as that has kind of moved on, it became this, I didn't even know I was personally branding, but I guess I was branding. Because people would tell me when they would either go off on like an adventure, travel adventure, or decide to kind of change kind of career paths. But like Natalia, I'm going to go left. And it, and it, I realized that it kind of translated into my professional idea, like the transition of going from like running entertainment and baseball to giving books to kids in need. People are like, how did that happen? And I was like, I just go left. And it, it was just this unknown territory. And it's also allowed me this, this stillness when I'm in times of transition, like that unknown is somehow comfortable for me. I'm uncomfortable trying to come up with a new decision and a new pathway when I'm already in one. Like I have to come to a complete stop. Once again, that is a privilege of mine. That is a luxury that I almost have. But I somehow trusted a 24 year old Mitali to buy that ticket. Out of the I remember turning my cell phone off. I remember putting all my stuff in storage. I remember breaking up with my boyfriend. I remember telling my parents about it. My Indian parents who finally got comfortable with me working in the entertainment industry that I bought a one-way ticket out of the country. And I didn't know when I was going to come back. I remember sitting in the terminal, just crying, thinking, what did I do? <laughs> um, no idea if I was going to make it a week or if I was going to make four months or a year. I, I mostly came back when like the money ran out. But yeah, go left, feel right to do the unknown. It's become this kind of thing. And in the end, that uncomfortableness, like you take enough left turns, you end up where you started in a way. Um, and I, I can now say if I take enough turns and I come back to where I started, I'm safe because I have people that will take me in. I will I will not go hungry. I will always have a bed. I'll always have that comfort. Um, but I can, I can go off, I could veer off, but if I do make it back home, wherever home is, and that's always the running question is where is Mitali's home? Um, I'm going to be okay. But home is, home is where my people are. My people can be all over the world. Uh, so yeah, that's where Go Left came from. It was that first one-way ticket on a Delta flight. <laughs> I remember I could see myself. I was, and there's no pictures too. Like there's no evidence of this either. There's no social media post um, to talk about this. I told myself I was going to blog and that went out the window because paying money at like internet cafes, traveling, no phone, no computer, nothing. I was like, mm. that's going to eat up my money. Um, I would just, every time I changed kind of locations, I would just send a quick email to my parents, my port. Did you journal? Did you at least journal? There was a couple of journals. I also did have a camera, but my camera was so stolen in Prague where I was going to download pictures and send them back. And it was actually by this group of American guys that stole it too. And I was so upset. I remember at a hostel. in a hostel, I remember walking yeah. through the very first hostel I ever stayed in. There was a guy in the dorm that had night terrors. <laughs> I thought I was like, I'm not going to make it two nights. Like, wh- like I thought somebody was like coming to kill me in my sleep. A guy had night terrors <laughs> in a shared hostel. Um, 
Night one. Night one. Night one. Yeah. <laughs> well, over the years, as we as as you'd be doing something different, I'd be like, "What you're doing that now?" You're like, "Yep, I'm going left." So so I I just love it so much. Talk about your most recent yeah. left hand turn. Yeah. T- tell me about the new company. So the new organization is called Youth Jobs Connect. Um, I the past few years I have found myself working in kind of the diversity in tech and kind of gender equity in tech and really focus on like workforce readiness, workforce development. And I've been fortunate enough to, I ran a big national tour that was trying to help people get jobs across the country in tech, people that came from different backgrounds. So women, people of color, people with disabilities, veterans, loved it, ran ran around the country for a year. It was the most eye-opening experience. Um, and the past couple of years, I've just mostly been consulting as on my own, either doing event production or working with amazing nonprofits like anitab.org that fights for you know gender equity um, intersectionality in tech. And this summer, or not the summer, I guess the spring, um, I got a call from a friend, a former White House Office of Science and Technology, who runs the amazing Digital Harbor Foundation in Baltimore. Um, our paths have intersected the past couple of years. And he called me t- uh, to ask about, he's, he was telling me about how the summer youth employment programs in the city of Baltimore, because of COVID, were going to be canceled. So 8,000 young people's jobs were going to be canceled. These six-week programs that were paying anywhere between $800 to $2,000 for these young people were just not going to be given to them in any way because they didn't qualify for unemployment or PPP. So the city's budgets were just going to reallocate those funds for other COVID response. Um, and so Andrew, a Digital Harbor Foundation, was looking to work with the Mayor's Office of Economic Development to try to save some of this and convert some of those jobs to some kind of virtual learn and earn programs. Like, can we get some of these companies on board? And so the call to me was, I know another amazing uh, individual, Kumar Gargut Schmidt Futures, he's like, well, if you want to take what you're doing in Baltimore and try to help a bunch of cities really quickly, call Mitali. Because when I ran the jobs tour a few years ago, um, I was activating in markets in like two to six weeks. And most people would spend six months, you, you know, you do 48 and 48 and how long it takes to activate a market and so on and get like all the ecosystem players and everybody on board. I somehow had this crazy pace and what I call internet hustle um, of just trying to activate these markets is in this short amount of time. And you can imagine with, with COVID and what was happening, as soon as a city was going to decide to cut those budgets, they were gone. It was like that funding was immediately allocated to something else. And so the way that Baltimore and, and DHF was working to kind of establish this new kind of virtual learning and kind of providing more of this digital skills learning, like how do you set up Slack and how do you email and like very skills that like any workplace is going to require, but re- really utilizing this time in the summer and these employment programs as an opportunity to like build skills, but also align them with like the jobs that will be in demand um, for these young people. And, and these young people are called, they're either called disconnected youth or opportunity youth, primarily from those, you know, that are at or below the poverty line, a large portion of black and brown youth, um, so as I was working to help Baltimore and I was asked to activate all these markets, uh, the protests um, started, um, you know, t- because of what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and like so many before them. And I remember sitting in Atlanta. I've been in Atlanta mostly helping with my my new nephew and watching the protests. And we, we saw what was happening in Atlanta. I could hear the helicopters in the city. And I, as I was calling all these cities and trying to get in touch with people with the mayor's office and the people that were running these youth employment programs to be like, are you saving yours? Are you canceling it? Are are you dwindling it down to a smaller number? I could barely get anybody to call me back because of what was happening in all these cities. And then I started to like actually look at 
who was in the streets. And it was predominantly young people that you, and you know, those that fall in these and and the youth category are usually between the ages of 14 to 24, depending on the city. And I started to find myself losing sleep and thinking about, I can't imagine being a young black female, 16 years old, waking up every day right now in a pandemic, watching family members, people in their community being shot and killed and somehow trying to find some sort of hope that this country, society would allow me to be myself and prosper. Because it seemed as though like if I was a young person, I wouldn't get out of bed ever again. But so many of these young people don't have an option. They don't have a choice. They've got to go like help their families. They've got to, they've got to make some money. They've got to like keep going. They've got to just survive. And this idea that these systems that we've set up are not equal and that these youth employment programs are these huge opportunities to try to provide some new skills, new learnings, because pivoting in formal education is hard. That is a big beast and educators are inundated. Could could these programs allow us an opportunity to provide better skills, that first job, Hmm. that first mentor, that first coach to say, we got you, society believes in you, we're going to give you a bit of a chance, we're going to instill a little bit of hope when maybe like everything doesn't feel hopeful you know, you feel hopeless. Um, And so as I was kind of thinking, I was just supposed to be working on like activating these markets, I was kind of just like, stopped in my tracks, because it seemed like there was like a huge racial reckoning within myself, like, yes, I'm a minority, but I am a, I am an Indian American, I am not a black American. And, And my dad said it, it's kind of crass. And I'm grateful that my dad had provided me that racial awareness at a young age, because a lot of South Asian families don't have this. As my dad said, just remember, we're in this country on the backs of Blacks. And I always thought that, like, when my dad would say that, I was like, you can't say something like that. But it's so true. It's like this whole idea of, like, you know, if it wasn't for Brown v. Board of Education, like, I wouldn't have been able to go to the schools that I went to, right? And, like, my dad was an educated immigrant that came to this country because of his education. So he had a fallback if needed. And this idea that like we can keep going in society and that I could keep working and like kind of like making these sectors equitable is we're not starting early enough, right? Like that intervention, that intersection, that collision of education to like real life or workforce for some starts earlier. Not everybody gets to go off to these two to four year institutions. So Youth Jobs Connect is really is like crazily, these programs across the country are one of the few programs that don't have like a national kind of coalition or connection. Not that I want to be some sort of association, but I want to be able to share like what Milwaukee is doing with the, with Atlanta. And I want Atlanta's programs to be connected to Oakland. And I want, you know, Baltimore's new virtual offerings to be shared with other cities. And what we want to do is be kind of be that connection piece because the people that are running these programs within the cities and the other nonprofits and civic organizations that they work with and the corporate companies that like bring in these young people to participate in employment internship opportunities over the summer, like they're all doing their parts and pieces, but they're all once again, underfunded, under resourced. Um, so can we be that kind of connection piece? And at the same time, it's also utilizing kind of Youth Jobs Connect as a way to kind of amplify the importance of these programs and the stories of young people um, today, this whole idea of the young people are going to save us and so on. 
I mean, that just crushes me because I'm like, can we stop overburdening young people saying, can you fix all of this? All the stuff that we didn't fix. Now we're going to tell an 18 year old that it's on you. That's not fair. Um, no. <laughs> and I think the, the the big reckoning for me was not only just like, you know, the color of my skin and thinking of what I was doing and how I was, I was providing impact is, um, you know, all these go lefts and so on. Like, I thought I've been this big risk taker my whole life and I've been taking all these crazy turns, but it, they actually weren't as risky as I thought they were because I always had a safety net and I always had a home. And I always had somebody that was going to support me. And, and part of it is me. I was like, I have, I've worked my butt off to be, build beautiful connections and networks and friendships and, and partnerships and, and being true to my family and so on. However, as risky as I've always been, it's not as risky as just waking up in America as a Black American, as a Latinx youth in this country. Like that is, it's just risky being alive for them. And it shouldn't be that way. Well, what I love about what you're doing now is that like anyone that listened to the, your story as, as we've told it today, will see that it's, uh, it's aligning your passions, your experience, your skills. So I'm super excited about it. We will link to it yeah. and then I'll ask you as well, like what we can, what we can do to share it out and, and see if, uh, people can help. I have one quick question before we wrap up here. Um, I always like to ask people, what's your favorite book or books that you go back to over time? Yeah. It can be any, it could be fiction, nonfiction, um, and why. So I was laughing the other day and I know it's going to be a bit cliche, but like we just got it for my nephew. It, it is that childhood story of the little engine that could. Um, I don't know why, but there's something, my dad was an engineer. There's something industrial about like the, the parts and the mechanics of of, of, of the little engine that could like, I was that voracious reader growing up. Like I, I, I would get those stickers from the library, right? Like I read a hundred books this summer and so on, but I think I just read sometimes for the sake of like reading, like, like I was just an avid reader, like all the words came into me, but I, sometimes I can't, I feel like I missed the story. Um, I do know like the books by, you know, Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon had a, had a place in my heart. Um, the stories, I believe his name is, um, there's a travel writer that I always write that always like kind of translated into a parts of my story. Now you told me, to, you told me at the beginning to remember the name of the book and I can't believe I, I don't have it. I could see it on a bookshelf. Problem is my bookshelves have moved so many times. I don't even know where half my books are. Um, but I will say that one of the most recent books, which is uh, it, I, I feel as though like a great book to read is um, Arlen um, Hamilton's uh, it's about damn time. If you don't know Arlen, she's this amazing black female, Black queer female VC that um, you know was basically homeless and learned all about that world and is is creating opportunity for uh, people of color um, to start businesses and build businesses and her story is just so inspirational and if you don't know I, I feel as though when I was reading the book I felt as though I already knew the story but um, and it's also called it's about damn time by the merch like it's so great I, I am I'm finding myself leaning towards getting more of those books by female entrepreneurs recently of just you know, people sharing their stories of like how the heck they got there. Like that means a, means a lot to me. Road Trip Nation, if it's another book, their books of p storytelling of entrepreneurs have been really important throughout my life. They're an amazing uh, program too for young people that are trying to find their way. So uh, I, I think those would be it. I know that you're an amazing reader. You like read one a week. Um <laughs> Once upon a Once time, upon not, a not time. Anymore, but I'm going to look into to those. Some of those I heard of, but some of those not. Um, Matali, you are a bright light um, in every every person you interact with. I'm so thrilled with what you're doing now. It was so awesome to catch up with you. 
Um, and you know, if you ever need anything, you let me know, but thank you so much for doing thank this. You, Jeff. Thank you for being you. Thank you for being the amazing connector, entrepreneur, philanthropist friend that you are not just to me, but to, to so many. So I appreciate it. It was an I honor. And, and by the way, no one can see you, but you're wearing a good trouble shirt. So let's, let's both keep getting into good, good trouble. trouble. It so. is my friend. All right. Talk to you soon. Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think people did that anymore. Well, since I still have you, I'd love for you to do two things. First, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That way you'll be alerted as soon as I post my next one. And second, I'd love for you to subscribe to my email newsletter. I send out an email every week or two, and it's really where I share my more personal thoughts and ideas. Plus, I give stuff away sometimes. You can find the sign up at my blog, jeffhillemeyer.com. And I really do appreciate you listening.